Well, good morning. Uh, it really is just a privilege for me to bring uh, God's Word to you this morning. Um, and I'm just grateful for uh, Transit Church's partnership on Freedom Sunday. Um, as, as Jeff said, I've been part of this organization, IJM, International Justice Mission. It's a, it's a Christian ministry organization that focuses on the issue of injustice and violence worldwide. And the hope is to identify people uh, all over the world that because of their poverty, uh, because they don't have any means, most of the time either no education or um, the systems are broken in the places that they live all around the world, that they're the most vulnerable. And so you find statistics uh, that are just staggering, you know, in terms of just how this plays itself out. Um, and, you know, I'd heard one person say, say it this way, you know, why is it that, um, you know, this kind of violence happens to the weakest of individuals in society, young girls, young children, poor families? Um, and, and I think he put it simply like this, because they can. Because they can, right? And so that's, that's, the, that's the issue that's before us. And so today, as a church, uh, we're participating in what is Freedom Sunday. And it's just an opportunity for us to look at the issue of justice um, and look at the, the, the picture of biblical justice. You know, and what does the Bible say when it comes to the topic of justice? And, and that's not necessarily the most often discussed topic growing up. You know, it wasn't something that I heard a lot about. You know, we talk about so many things in, in Scripture about, about our God, right? His, his heart uh, for those that are lost in the way that he came to this world, his, his, um, his way of saving us from sin. Um, um, and yet the Bible talks a lot about this topic of justice. Um, and God's heart really does bend towards those that are being victimized by it. So um, it's, it's just an honor for, for me to be able to bring some of this with you. One of the things that I think we um, miss is the fact that um, we sort of have a flawed notion of justice. Um, I think we equate justice with the fact that you deserve it or you don't deserve it. And so we have a very superficial, limited way of looking at justice from the sense of, well, how deserving are you of something? Um, and so we stop there. But that's not exactly the full picture of what biblical justice is. And, and when I talk about this idea of justice, the scripture talks about this concept of shalom. Um, you know, and it's, it's deeper than, than, than the greetings that, that we might be familiar with in, in Jewish culture. Shalom, in, in the richness of that term, is the perfect harmony, the perfect interdependence of God, his people, and all of creation. God had created this world and you and I and he had begun a relationship so that there was perfect harmony between all three of those things. God himself, his people that he created, and the world around us. And so what sin has done is that it's broken the shalom. The fabric of society comes unraveling, and that shalom is broken. That, that perfect, harmonious, interdependent relationship is no longer existing. And so what Jesus, I think, is calling us as Christians to do is to reweave that fabric of shalom back into society, right? That's the calling that we have. Our Christian faith is not just designed for us to experience the joy and the love and the goodness of Christ, but to be salt and light in this world and to bring that all over the world. And, you know, that's not easy, right? We all understand how challenging it is to have faith um, and to be bold or, or, or vocal 
or just straightforward about the faith that we have. We live in a world where there's so many issues that divide, and those issues seem to put us in a place on the defensive or sometimes quiet, right? But it's fascinating to me when I look at the history of the world and of how God uses his people to continue to, to change the, the realities. For example, one of the things that I can, I can speak about from just history in India and many other developing countries is this concept of education. Education is something that we now have, and we have public schools and people study, but that wasn't always the case in history. People didn't have to study because there was no need for education. Your job was whatever you did with your hands, and you made or farmed or had cattle, and the purpose was just to survive and eat and be okay. Education wasn't a necessity. So you would have generations and generations of poor people who just never got any education. Therefore, they were never able to advance or move in society. The very first, first movement of education actually came from Christians and missionaries. Why? Because they wanted people to be able to read the Word of God, right? The very first thing that people read was the Bible, God's Word. And so how do you, how do you give people the opportunity to know God if you're preaching in, 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 in parts of the world where they've never heard of this Jesus? Well, you have to help them to read the Word of God. But if they don't even know how to read, what do you do? You have to actually start to begin to educate them. And so education actually began like that, and then you start to see what happens when people get educated. Well, when you get educated, your mind begins to sharpen. You begin to become more and more curious. You begin to have more hope. You have an opportunity to look at this world and say, well, why do I have to stay in this situation? If I stretch myself, there's a hope for something. And you see the hope that poor families have of seeing that maybe they can't get there, but their kids or their grandkids someday might have a better life because of education. But it was actually through, through, through Christianity that education came. And if you look at all the old institutions in America, right, all the original schools, they were all Christian seminaries, right? All devoted to the purpose of giving people an understanding of who God is. Medicine, the same thing. Where did this concept of medicine and how did it come in? It was Christians who started to treat people that were sick, right? The thing that you would do with sick people when you didn't have any concept of medicine was to quarantine them and separate yourself from them. But Christians began to, as they understood that this world had a design and a purpose, began to create hospitals and began to, to treat those that are ill and those that are sick, Science, in every way, is the same thing. All the great discoverers, right, from Newton to, to Galileo to all of these people that discovered the great things of this world, right, were actually Christians. Why? Because they believe that the world is designed by a designer. It had a creator. So if there's an order and a, and a purpose in this, well, let's try to figure it out, right? That means it makes sense, and let's try to understand it. Now, when you look at all these arenas that we talk about today, it seems like Christians have sort of been squeezed out of that places, right? We sort of find ourselves on the outside of those, those things. But I think it's important for us to figure out how to re-engage the world. Hollywood is actually the same thing. It was actually Christians who started Hollywood and the movie industries to be able to tell great stories and to bring entertainment, right? But over time, there is this battle. There is this tension between those that believe in the things of God and those that don't. And here's the tension I find myself in life all the time, sort of squeezed out to keep my mouth closed, to remain on the outside. But God will continue to push us 
into the hard places, into the things that this world needs because, he says it, the world needs us to enter in and share the truth and the beauty and the vision of who God is, and it's not going to be easy. And that's why Jesus says that they will persecute you because they persecuted me. And so when I, when I want to approach this concept of, of justice today, it's also from this perspective that IGM had in, in terms of it's important. It's important to help those that are suffering and those that are, those that are being abused and those that have no hope. But also, it's important to show the world what biblical justice looks like, what the heart of God looks like. And I find this really fascinating because... There are always times when the world is a little confused about who Christians are, right? They have this stereotype of Christians, right? And so every once in a while, Christians sort of do something or say something that makes them say, well, that's not really fitting my stereotype. And so the work of justice, especially in today's generation, we look at the millennials, we look at people that are young, it's very, very core, right? It, it really beats in their heart as something that they care about deeply, and so I think this is a great opportunity for the church, the, the, the global church of who God's church is, to be able to engage on an issue and shock the world and says, huh, I didn't think Christians cared about those things, right? But that is the way we re-enter. We have to continue to find ways to re-enter the marketplace of ideas, the marketplaces of this world where, where this decisions are being made, culture is being shaped, direction is being set, even when it's hard and figure out ways to engage in it and bring God's truth, God's kingdom, and ultimately, you know, God's kingdom into these places. So today, as we look at this topic of justice, I want to also frame a sub-question for us, which is this. What is it that keeps you and I from approaching God for help? Is there a sense of ungodly fear? that sometimes makes us hesitate from coming to God when we really need help? What about deep shame of our sense of unworthiness? Is, this, is there a sense that we have that we don't deserve God's help? I don't deserve God's help. I've messed up one time too many, and so now I just cannot go back again and do a do-over, press a do-over button with God. That's it. I've, I, I have so much shame in who I am. I look at my life. I look at my actions. I look at the things that I keep falling down in, and I come from, I take the perspective, you know what, I'm just going to stay on the periphery. I'm going to stay on the distance. What I want to define that is ungodly fear, not godly fear, or deep shame, right? It's the lies of the enemy that trick us and make us think that You've, you've crossed the line one too many times. It's, it's actually the anti-gospel. But it does, it is that voice in our head that will make us question. It is a thing that we say, I do this, I, I, and I said this last time, I do this many times before I take communion, I have this sense of worthiness. But that actually blows apart what actually communion is, right? Because communion is for those that are unworthy, the, those that cannot walk the straight and narrow path. Communion is for the broken, this church, this service, this place is for those that will raise their hand and say, I can't do it on my own. I fail and I continue to fail. God help me. So to look at that, I wanted to look at a story in the book of Kings. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3. It's a, it's a fairly familiar story. You can follow along. Um, 
Um, there are Bibles, if you don't have it, on the, on the first aisles underneath the seat, so just ask whoever is sitting in that seat to pass it to you. Or, you know, if you have it... Uh, if you have an app or whatever it is, open that up, and we'll look at this chapter. It's familiar because it's the story of Solomon um, and, uh, and, and how Solomon uh, becomes the wisest ruler of all time. And so the story is framed like this. Um, so just a little bit of background. Solomon is now king. Solomon is David's son, right? And he's king. He's ruling. David has died, and he's, David has selected Solomon to be king. And Solomon is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, Solomon is a man who's trying very hard to walk obediently and right with the Lord. And he sacrifices and he worships, but he's also um, not exclusively worshiping God. It tells us many times that he would go to these high places and do what was the rituals in those societies at the same time. So there's a mixed bag there. And as king, he would try to figure out how to have stability in his kingdom. And so one of the things that he would do was marry women, right, from different kingdoms. So this chapter actually starts off with Solomon marrying someone from Egypt, right? I think it was Pharaoh's daughter, to create a marriage alliance with the people of Egypt. So Solomon is a man who's trying to understand and walk obediently with the Lord, uh, but he's not a perfect man, and he has a lot of compromises in his life. So with that background, let me just read a few verses and and, and go. From verse 3, it says this. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king, this is Solomon, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was a great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. I mean, he was very serious, right, about about when he came to uh, offering sacrifices to the Lord. At Gibeon, it says this, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, God said, ask what I shall give you. Now, that is, that is the, that's the opening of this, right? Solomon is at worshiping at this place, Gibeon. He's sleeping, and in a dream, it says, God comes to him and says, ask what you want. Ask of me what you want, and I shall give it to you. It's sort of like this uh, the genie in a bottle kind of a moment, right? Like, can I have anything you want in this world? Go ahead and ask it. I mean, that's, that's, that's not the kind of things that happens very often, so the Bible records this. But, I mean, imagine for a second if that was something that was offered to you, right? What's the, what's, what would come to your mind? If you only had one thing you could pick, one thing you could have, how would you frame it? You'd think about it very carefully probably and try to... Tried to get two or three things tied into it, maybe, right? Um, linked all in. But, but God comes to him with this really amazing thing. He says, Solomon, ask anything you want, and I'll give it to you. What a, what a, what a phenomenal setting already that's happening. And so here's what Solomon says in verse 7, right? And Solomon said in verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? That's, 
That's a remarkable request that Solomon has. He can have anything he wants. He can have absolute power right now. He can have, you know, the, the biggest kingdom, uh, dominate everybody in that area, all the wealth, all the, all the riches in this world. And he says, you've asked me, you've chosen me to rule your people. That's a great task, a hard task. And I want to know how to discern good from evil, right from wrong. Can you give me that understanding so that I can rule your people well? And it says how pleased God is with Solomon's request because in verse 10 it says, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. You got it, Solomon. What you have asked for, I'm going to give it to you. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. God says, you, you will be the wisest person. I will give you my wisdom and there will be none like you either before or after. And he says, after that, he said, I will, I will give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. What an amazing setting right now, right? Here is God coming in and offering Solomon this, and Solomon is now gifted with the gift of wisdom. Wisdom is an interesting thing. Wisdom, to be honest with you, is something that we all need. When we say wisdom, let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean? I think wisdom is this deep, penetrating understanding of the world and how it works. Right? Like, it just makes sense. Wisdom lets you see the world from God's point of view. and allows you to act in harmony with the way he made things. Right? It makes you make, helps you make sense of things. Think about how many times situations come up and the truth is you actually don't know what the right choice is, what the right decision is, right? Because it's complicated. There's lots of nuances to it. But wisdom is the ability to understand this world and how it works and even understand it from God's point of view in such a way that there's harmony. That word shalom, right? It's that sense of understanding how does this perfect, beautiful interdependence between God and human beings and his creation actually coexist together well. So that's the setting. That's the background of this story. And it says after that, Solomon awoke, and behold, he realized it was a dream, but this is the gift that it's given to him. And so with that backdrop, right, now we want to figure out how does God show the world this amazing gift that God has given to him? How do we remember Solomon as the wisest of kings? Is it because of the courts that he held with all these great people that came? And it tells us that people from all around the world would come and want to hear Solomon and want to listen and have conversations and discussions and debate because he held that. Is it, is it the way he conquered and ruled? Is that the way God says, see, that's the picture of the wisdom that I gave to him? Or is it the wealth? He had amazing, just ridiculous wealth. Is that the way that God captures for us the fact that he made Solomon wise? No, it's not actually, right? There's actually an interesting story right after this that God uses to tell us that Solomon is a wise king. And it is through that story that the people of Israel would turn and say, 
huh, God, you have given us a, a king who is wise and who knows and understands the things of your heart. And the story is actually about two women that come to the king's court with a court case, right? Now, I've learned this story in Sunday school. I, I promise to keep this PG, PG-13 a little bit. I, I, I will, you know, uh, uh, parts of it. <laughs> okay. Um, but here's the thing that I actually never picked up in Sunday school, you know, and I get it, right? The two women were actually prostitutes. That's what it tells us in verse 16. Two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Isn't that fascinating? That God wants to demonstrate his wisdom through the story of how he deals with a case on behalf of this woman who is a prostitute. And her case is this, right? Her case is a story of her baby being stolen from her. And, and she tells us, she, it tells us that what happens was that she and another woman, both of them were, were uh, uh, prostitutes, were living in a house, and they both had babies about three days apart. And it says that one of the women actually accidentally laid on her baby. It sounds like she rolled on her baby, tragic and sad, and the baby died in the middle of the night. And so what that woman decided to do when she realized her baby was dead was to take her baby and switch it with the other woman whose baby was still alive. They were only three days apart, right? And in the morning, the real mom wakes up and she realizes the baby is dead, but when she looks closely, she can tell that's not her baby. That's not her child. And so she needs to deal with this situation. But how's she going to deal with it? Who is going to hear her case? What does a woman who is in this situation in life actually do to get help? Who helps her? How would it work? Who, who is this woman, by the way, right? It tells us a little bit about the case, but it doesn't tell us much about who the woman is. So I thought maybe I'll, I'll take a little bit of um, a liberty here and maybe use, let us use our imagination and, and just describe to you what we found in, in the work that we've done. Many, many, many women like this actually start out in that world at a very young age when they're just still children. And so I want to share with you a little bit, and again, I, I promise I will not, uh, I will not make this uh, um, hard to hear, um, but I just want you to know a person. And so this is actually the girl whose video we saw yesterday, uh, Sadna, because I had a chance to meet her and talk to her and find out her story. Her story before her story, right? Who is this human being? Because I think God finds it important for us to know those things because God knows those things. So let me tell you a little bit about who Sadna is and her story. <clears throat> She's a girl who lived outside of a big city in India called Calcutta. Calcutta is way on the eastern side, sort of where Maine would be. Maine, you know, the New England states would be in the U.S., way on the northeast corner side of India in a state called West Bengal. She lived in a village. It was at the age of 10 that Sadhana learned how to climb a coconut tree. You see, Sadhana had seen many men in her village just climb a coconut tree by just running up. And they didn't have any climbing gear or anything like that. They would just, just tie something around their ankles and they would just scoot up, scoot up trees. So at the age of 10, Sadhana felt that she was ready to climb her first coconut tree. So what she did was she took two of her mom's tops, the, it's called blouses that they have, uh, that they wear with saris. She took it, she tied it together, 
without permission, and used it to secure her footing. She started climbing with no thought of the widening distance between her and the earth beneath her. And using every ounce of strength of a 10-year-old girl, she was determined and she managed to get all the way to the top. And so while she hugged the tree with one hand, she reached out with the other hand and she twisted off a coconut from the top of a tree. I mean, those trees, right, can be 30, 40 or more feet high up in the air, but she had no problem. She went all the way to the top and she took a coconut. She poked a hole on the top of it, on the outer shell, and casually sat there uh, holding onto the tree and drinking the coconut water, or they call it coconut milk, inside the tree. That's when her grandmother came out of the house and looked up and saw her. And her grandmother was furious. She said, Sadna, you get down here right now. Who told you that you could eat all of our coconuts? We need that for the family. Sadna, come down right now. Well, seeing how angry her grandmother was, Sadna weighed her options and thought maybe the best choice was to say nothing at all. Well, her grandmother kept looking up and, and ranting, what am I going to do with this girl? She's eating all of our coconuts. And in a village, right, that was actually what they used to either for food for themselves or to sell, right, 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 to have food. Soon what happened was some of the neighbors heard this commotion. They started to wander over and see what, what all this was about. And meanwhile, Sadna just quietly watched from the top of the tree as the crowd was just gathering and waiting for her to come down. But she stayed right there. And she just plucked another coconut and drank the coconut water from that tree. Well, she stayed and stayed and stayed, just hugging on with one arm and her legs wrapped around the tree while she was holding a coconut with the other one. And eventually the people that were waiting for her to come down and screaming, including her grandmother, got tired of waiting and they left. And it was only after they left that Sadna scooted all the way down. And she came down, she quickly, she said, she unknotted her mother's blouse, put it back where she found it. She didn't want to get in trouble for that also. And she thought maybe the best thing to do for the rest of the day was try to stay away from her grandmother. <laughs> That's who she is. That's who Sadna is. Fearless and fierce, even as a, as a young girl. Growing up in this, in this village outside of Kolkata, she really wasn't afraid of anything. She lived in a hut, a very, you know, small kind of a, a thing that they constructed. Um, and she lived with her parents and her grandmother, and she had a younger sister, a baby sister. And as she looked out into those places, she said she would describe it as brilliant green paddy fields stretched as far as the eyes could see. And there were trees ripe with mangoes and tamarind fruit and coconuts that seemed to droop over a number of murky ponds that, exist, that were in that place. Well, one day, Sadna had asked the rich landowner to give her some fruit in a, in a nearby house. Well, he said no, he refused. And as you might guess, she doesn't take, say, being told no very well. So while the owner was sleeping in the humid heat of the day, she got together a bunch of friends, and she went up that tree and sprinted down with fistfuls of fruit. You know, as I looked at Sadna and as I thought about her, I thought it seems like God has given Sadna this spirit that just wants to conquer everything she challenges. She has that, that sort of indomitable spirit within her. But it can also get her in trouble at times, except that she also gets away because she has this very sweet, innocent little smile. And she would easily be able to melt her father's anger anytime just by smiling. Well, also at the age of 10, Sadhana became fascinated with fishing. You know, I described that there's all these little ponds all around. And she would watch the man who would be fit in the village fish all day in the ponds. 
And so during summer times, what happened was that the pond would dry up quite a bit and making it somewhat easier to see the fish. By late evening, after the men had caught their fill of the fish, what they would do is they would just drink, sit around the, the pond and just drink cheap liquor until most of the men were pretty drunk. And one night, Sadna mustered the courage to wander over to the pond, and she was wearing her dad's t-shirt, and she was carrying two buckets in her hand. And a few of the men saw her approaching, and they stopped her and said, where are you going? She said, I want to catch some fish. Well, they looked her up and down and saw that she was just, just a tiny little thing. And so because of that, they sort of laughed at her, and they said, all right, all right go ahead. They ignored her. Well, what Sadna did was she wandered into the pond, and the sun was almost setting, so it was actually difficult to see the fish even though the water was low. But what Sadna would do is she would plunge her hand into the water because, because the dirt was actually, you know, sometimes the fish would sort of get stuck in the dirt, in the mud, and she would start groping for the fish, and with her bare hand, she would just lift up a fish. And when she would catch it, she would put it into the bucket. And, 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 and she started to do this, and she kept doing this. She would hold it firmly in her hand, and she would catch another fish and another fish, and another fish. And to everyone's surprise, within a short period of time, she had filled one entire bucket full of fish. In fact, a few times when she would reach into the water, she would feel something slippery there that she would grasp, but it was actually a snake. And with no fear at all, she would throw that snake, and she would just go back to reaching for more fish. And so she didn't stop until her buckets were completely full. She said her only regret the first time she went fishing was that she didn't bring big enough buckets. And all the fishermen just sort of watched in astonishment. They couldn't believe this little girl was able to catch that much fish. But now fishing became something that she just really loved to do. It was in her blood. And she would do this on a daily basis. And now what she would do was she would outrace the older folks in the village to fill her buckets of fish first, and she would bake, take it back to the family. And that would be the dinner or lunch for the family, or that's what they would sell to make, make life for themselves. And all the fishermen were just astonished at how much she caught. And so she remembers fondly, many times she would fish until it got very dark at night, and by the time she comes back, her mom would be asleep. But she said her father always waited up for her. And when her father would see her, um, some of her most vivid memories was that he would then cook the fish, and the two of them would eat before they went to bed that night. She just seemed to have fond memories of her childhood, and she adored these, these, these memories. And even though there were a lot of problems and a lot of poverty and a lot of things that they dealt with, and what her parents would do for work, because they just had to make a living, was they would go to the big city. The big city was Calcutta. That was a two-hour bus ride away. And so her mom's job was a domestic worker. She would clean people's houses. And her father drove an uh, auto rickshaw. It was a sort of a, uh, a form of taxi that he would drive, and that's the way they would, they would make a living. And so sometimes they would be gone the entire week, so her grandmother was the one who raised her, but they would come back on the weekends as they could. They struggled to make steady money. Parents argued a lot about those kinds of things. Money seemed to be a real pain point for them. But that was her story. That was her upbringing. In the morning, Sadna would walk to school with her friends, and she would walk past the paddy fields. Um, and, you know, and she felt guilty as she was having this opportunity to have an education, because she, she really seemed to worry about her family and how hard life was for her mom and dad. And she felt like it wasn't fair that she gets to have these opportunities while um, her parents had to struggle so hard. 
But this was her this story, you know, running around, playing in the, in, in the pond and climbing trees and fishing. And, but somewhere around the age of 11, she had stopped going to school because her family situation was so dire and she started to look for whatever work that she could do. That's actually a common thing that happens to many poor people in the villages because they don't necessarily see a purpose or a point in education. Right? You, have, you have enough education to sort of get by, read and write, but you don't have any ambitions that's tied to education being a hope or a future. So she started to work. And like many others in the village, her first job was extracting coconut fibers. That's what they would do, the, the rough fibers on the outside. And those fibers are actually used to make sofa cushions. And so she would soak the coconuts for hours in the pond, and then she would dry it in the sun, and she was seated on the dirt, and then she would pick off that fluffy exterior part of the coconut until she was surrounded by a mass of that fiber, and then she would pack it all into a parcel as far as, her, as wide as her arms were, and she would bring it to her family so they could find a way to sell it. For every bundle that she would, she would package, she would receive what was in Indian currency 10 rupees. That's about 15 cents. That's the equivalent of US 15 cents. And that's what she would make in one day's worth of work. Um, and she could make about three bundles sometimes um, within a week. And so she would be making about 45 cents a week. But she was, a, she was probably the youngest person in the village that would do this work, but she was also one of the most hardest workers that they knew. Well, after about three weeks of doing this, her grandmother said to the family, you know, maybe you should all move to Kolkata um, because you just need to find better jobs there and be together. Well, the city was actually hard for Sadhana because she was lonely. She wasn't a city girl. She didn't understand the sort of the rules and the way things work. She didn't have any friends there. The whole situation felt awkward and difficult. But eventually she found a job similar to her mom, being a domestic worker. Imagine that, being just barely, not even a teenager, but her job was a domestic worker. She would work about 12-hour days, but the problem was that she'd barely make any money, enough money. But this was her life, and this is the way that they all tried to pitch in together and get by. Well, one day, when she came home from, from work, a relative stopped her at the door and told her the news that she could, that would just break her heart. Her father had just died. And so her father had passed away, and now it was just Sadna and her mom, and her younger sister, and her grandmother. That was all that was left. Sadhana being the oldest, but, but barely 12, as part of the Hindu ritual at that time, she had to be, the, and there were no males in the family, she had to perform all the funeral rites and be, have to take all that responsibility. It was probably the first time in her life Sadhana said that she actually remembers being afraid. She remembers being fearful. And she felt even more after that the responsibility of taking care of her family and of showing up. And so she was desperate to find something better. This job that she had wasn't enough. They couldn't make do now without her father's income. So she tried to ask around and see if there was anything. And so a neighbor said, well, you know, um, I can connect you with someone who has a better job that can help you. And so here's a phone number. And so that person said, you can actually get good pay. It's a cleaning job. But if you go to that, this address, um, you'll get a good, 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 good pay out of it. So the next day, Sadna arrived at the apartment where this woman was, but something was not right. It was, a, it was a place that seemed to have a lot of strangers in it. And she couldn't really recognize, and she was, she was a young girl and naive, but you know, looking back, she could recall all the liquor bottles that were there and, and, and the uh, condoms on the floor there, but she wasn't really kind of paying attention to that. 
And so she didn't understand exactly what was going on, but she was just sort of overtaken by the situation. And so she had asked someone, listen, can I just get a glass of water to drink? And so the woman there handed her something, and that's the last thing she remembers because she fell unconscious. She woke up sometime later. She has no idea when. She found herself lying on her floor, but her clothes were all gone. And terrified, she started to cry. And so she was not sure exactly what to do and what had happened. And so she had started to understand, and she had, she had been violated, as, and she, could, she was aware of that that happened while she was unconscious. And it was later that she realized that this was not a job, but the woman there was running actually a brothel out of her own home. And she told Sadna, you're going to have to be one of my workers. And she said, oh my gosh, no. No, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. That's No, not at all. Please, can I just go? Can I just leave? But the woman said, well, if you leave, I'm going to tell your whole family, everybody that knows you, what happened here and what you've done. I mean, what has she done? She was unconscious. She was unaware, right? But to a young girl, that was a threat that just paralyzed her from being able to fight back. If that wasn't enough, she said, listen, I'm going to make sure that I send goons to your house and beat up your family if you don't show up back here whenever I ask you to come. And if you ever think about going to the police or doing something about it, I'll make sure I turn that case against you. So Sadna felt completely helpless, completely hopeless. She felt like she had no choice. And she said, okay, fine, fine, I promise I'll come back. She went home. She lied to her mom. She said, I found a great job. In fact, it'll take care of all of you guys. You guys can go back to the village. You don't have to be in Calcutta anymore. You and my sister, you can go back and I'll stay here. So for the next several months, this one fearless sadhana now lived under a reign of terror. She had lived with some relatives that were there, and whenever the madam would send the men over, she would have to come. And her job was to serve the customers um, whenever she was asked to do that. And even though she was technically free to come and go, it was a threat that kept her bound. It was a sense of nobody's for her, being all alone. Who is going to speak on my behalf? What do I have? That was the chains that kept her bound. And after a few months of being in this reality, that's all it took to break Sadhana's amazingly strong spirit. She now resigned to this as her story, her life. She actually said she felt like she'd probably be doing this forever. There was no way to come out. So if that's my whole life, then why fight it? That was the case until January of about four years ago. That was when she walked in and she saw two men coming into this house um, as customers. But for whatever reason, they weren't touching her. They weren't going near her. And after they entered in, they picked up the phone and they pressed some, some text and they spoke to somebody. And within a few moments, shocked to Sadhana's shock as well as everybody else, the door came knock, knocking over by police and IGM staff. And all of a sudden, Sadhana was picked up. The madam and all those people that were doing this were suddenly arrested. She herself was put into a police vehicle and taken down to a police station. The police had complete control of the apartment, and they took her and put her in an aftercare home. Coming back to this story in 1 Kings, I think that you see this scene, right, where the woman is coming to the courthouse. 
And she is probably wondering the same thing, right? Like, what hope is there for her? What chance of justice do I have? And sort of like Sadhana starts to feel ugly about herself, I'm sure that this woman in this story felt quite ugly about herself. You see in this story that she comes to court, but there's actually no advocate, no lawyer to speak on her behalf. Probably because not many people would want to stand on behalf of a woman like that, right? And moreover, what, what happens is that, can you just imagine? Can you just imagine the eyes of everybody staring at her as she walks into the court and comes in? Everybody probably knows who she is, what her story is. He doesn't need the judgment. She herself feels ugly, but just to be in that situation. But the courage that she finds, the hope that she finds is go into that court. And it's amazing to me that she is in the king's court. Sort of seems like the supreme court to me, right? And I don't understand how a case like that gets before the king, right? There's got to be a lot of judges, a lot of lower courts, but it's there. That's where it is, right? That's where we see that. And I think it's fascinating. God wants to show us what wisdom looks like. And so the best way he decides to show what wisdom and what justice looks like, what Solomon's wisdom looks like, is to bring justice for a woman who does not in any way deserve to have that kind of an experience. The kind of person that you would not invite maybe into your own homes. The kind of person who would be fodder for morning talk shows, right? That they would mock at and you would jeer at. But that's the person that, that God has decided to, to demonstrate his plan. Part of God's plan to put the world right means giving justice to a dishonorable woman, restoring her child back to her. It's someone that we may not want to be associated with, but God does not hesitate to associate with her. And it's just beautiful. And, and the story goes where Solomon puts the situation before them and says, well, if you're disputing about who it is, and it's a hard case, I guess, because they're both claiming, this is my daughter, this is my child, this is my child. And so Solomon says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the child that's alive and cut the child in half, and you can have half. Well, of course, what does a real mom do when they hear something so horrific like that? Oh, my God, even if I can't have the child, please don't touch, please don't touch my child. Please don't touch this child, right? And that's all it took for Solomon to know right, who the, who the real mom was, right, who the person was that, that loved this child. And it says that all Israel heard, in verse 28, all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And I think that's important for us just to, just to pause and wrap our heads around. That is who our God is, Right? Our God has never struggled to associate with people that are outcasts in society, right? It shocked the world, the kind of followers that he would invite. It wasn't the learned men, it was the fishermen, right? It was the tax collectors. It shocked the world because he seemed to hang out with the wrong kind of people. In fact, that's how they accused him in Luke 15. He says, you eat with sinners, right? Eating with someone in, in that culture is a sense of of bonding with them, saying we're united, we're, we're one. But that's the way they associated. What kind of a God are you that associates with people like that? And so from that perspective, I think we can see it's actually not that surprising that God would say, here's how I want to display to the world what my wisdom looks like. Here's what I want to show to the world, the gift that I have given to Solomon. I want to bring justice 
for a prostitute woman whose child has been stolen and whose situation nobody you know, wants to associate with and be close to. Coming back to, to Sadna, um, for the last four years, she has been in the safety of an aftercare home. And it's actually a really wonderful aftercare home. It's a, it's a Christian aftercare home. And so she, she vividly recalls, I had a chance to sit down with her last year and just, just talk to her. And she recalled to me her childhood story, but also just the terrifying moment of that rescue. She actually didn't know what to, what to think of it, who to trust. The whole situation was just a bit overwhelming for her. She said she remembered trying to fight off everybody, even the social workers now that she really loved and adored, but when they came and they were trying to put her, their arms around her and trying to wipe off the makeup and discomfort her, her, her first instinct was, was to sort of push them away. And she talks about the fact that she just got into the car and it wasn't until she got into the police vehicle that she just burst out crying. It took extensive counseling because she, sort, she started to regain herself again. And it was that weekly engagement, that weekly counseling, but a loving aftercare home as well that began to break down the layers of fear. And gradually, that, that irrepressibly enthusiastic spirit was back again. And by January of 2016, um, a couple of years after she was rescued, the social workers asked her, hey, Sadna, would you do something? Would you be up to going around and speaking and telling your story? We're doing a traffic awareness program. Well, at first she was scared and nobody wants to force her or ask her to do anything that she didn't. But the more she thought about it, the more she said, okay, I want to do this. And so one of the things that she does on a regular basis is that she goes to villages all around and she shares her story to young girls. And so when they hear that, you know, they get to relate and they get to hear. And she says, you know, I feel like it's my duty to share so that these same things don't happen to them. And so she's courageously now standing and being a leader. Last, this, last month in August, she received an award from the Indian government as a champion survivor. So if you can picture the governor of the state actually awarded her a special recognition for her courage to be a survivor who would speak up and tell her story. And even more so, Sadhana's been studying. She's a little older, but she's behind in her studies, but she's in high school right now, and she wants to finish. She has a desire to go back to college. You know, I asked her, so what do you want to do after you graduate? She said, go to college. And so she has a lot of dreams, a lot of ambitions. And also, being a part of this aftercare home that is Christian, she has come to know Jesus. And in coming to know Jesus, she started to attend a church. It's a church called Freedom Church. And so it's a freedom church, it's a congregation, it's a tiny little church. I had a chance to go to a little room where there's about 30 survivor girls that gather together. There's no furniture, they all just sit on the floor, and they worship in the local language. And the girls are asked to memorize Bible verses, and they ask them to say it, and they sing songs. Um, but they gather every Sunday evening for worship. And it was in um, February of last year, February of 2016, that they did their first baptism. And three girls got baptized, and one of them was Sadna. She, wanted, she said she wanted to be one of the first ones to get dunked. <laughs> and she had no problems going back and telling her mom and her sister, who are from a Hindu background, that she now loves Jesus. And she's been encouraging them ever since to also come to have faith in Jesus. It's just amazing to see how incredible her life has changed. She said that, when I came here, I got to know more about Jesus, and I learned that there is someone who loves me so much. 
Throughout everything I've experienced, she realizes now that God has always been there. Though at times I feel afraid or alone, I feel peace because God is on my side. I think when we look at the stories in 1 Kings or Sadhana's story, it is interesting how God uses this picture of, of unfaithfulness, of adulterous, adulterousness to describe Israel, right? Israel is often described as, some, uh, as his child uh, but was, or, or his bride, but who's unfaithful, right? In fact, that story of Gomer and Hosea is actually a reenactment of Israel's unfaithfulness. Even in the New Testament, when we looked at the book of James, right, God also used that same description when he talks about spirit, when, when we are spiritual adulterers, right, is the way that he looks at us. So it's important for us when we see these stories to also remember us in it, right? God is very aware of our own adultery, our own sins, our own brokenness, our, old, our own tendencies to associate with that which is not what he had designed in his perfect shalom to associate with. He knows that we have idols in our life that we battle every day. He knows that there are things, high places that we erect in our, in our homes, in our world, that we give, we give our own worship to. But that's not a, what causes God to run away from us or to say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. It's not what causes God to disassociate himself from us. But in fact, he comes closer to us. He knows of our own unfaithfulness, and he, but yet he comes near to us. And I find it so amazing, right, when we look at the gospel story, it's the story of Jesus coming for his bride, right? He comes for his bride, and he, and he, and he, and he makes us pure. We are not that, that bride that deserves that kind of holy status to be associated with Jesus. But Jesus says, I will make you white as snow again. I will renew who you are. Right? When we come to the cross, that's the beauty of what God is saying to us. He's saying, look, I am making you a new creation. No longer is the old you there anymore. You might think that in the shadows that that still exists, but that's gone. You are a new creation, new being. Come to me. I want to spend eternity in fellowship, in relationship with you. You are what I've been longing for. It just blows my mind, right? Think about that. God uses the most intimate covenant that he has created, the intimate sacrament he has created, that of a husband and a wife, to describe his relationship with us. That's what he wants. Despite knowing of our brokenness, or of our adulterous, wandering, um, sinful heart. So it's important for us that when, we, when we hear these stories to remember that God deals with these individuals no differently than he deals with us. Right? with great mercy. And in his justice, he makes us right with him again so that we can be with him again. So I just want to close with this. Sadna has, um, has been a part of this Freedom Church, and I said, I told you I got a chance to be there. And as we were singing today, singing Hallelujah, um, I was there at church, and I was hearing these girls sing in, in Bengali. That's the local language there. Hallelujah. And I was just so overwhelmed. I couldn't believe these 30 girls whose stories each rich, each hard, each so painful, but each so beautiful at the same time singing. And so I was able to just record a little piece of that. And here's what I want us to understand. They're also singing hallelujah. One day, Transit Church, you will meet Sadna. And together we will be sitting in one room singing hallelujah to our God who loves us, who saves us, right? And who makes us his own. So 
listen to this and just remember the beauty of who our God is. So how do we respond? You know, this is a, uh, a real story, a real circumstance, a real person, and those, and those sadhana perhaps might seem distant to us. Sadhus brought her near to us, her story near to us because he knows her. And, it, and we probably heard her voice just now singing a hallelujah, the same hallelujahs that we as Christians uh, utter here. And so uh, don't respond out of pity. Don't respond um, because I'm just... You're doing what the pastor says, but if it's in your heart to support what International Justice Mission does to make known the, the injustices that exist in our world and the biblical justice of God, then we would, we would encourage you to participate. How do you participate? You know, Christians have an opportunity to do three things. We can pray. We can pray for the God of justice to do what only he can do in places like Calcutta, where this stuff is going on daily. Um, for him to continue to um, raise up, employ people like IJM and the many of nonprofit organizations in our country and around the world that are trying to do what Jesus said, come to set captives free. Um, you can pray, you can give, you can give through us, you can become a freedom partner with IJM. And obviously you can go, come up and talk to you about what they're doing. Uh, you you might notice Saju disappears about every <laughs> once every quarter and he goes particularly to India to do things like this and of course he's a, a vice president over this region and so he's uh, managing what's going on there uh, but there, there are plenty of places that you can go and hopefully we'll hear about other other ways that we can be involved as Christians in the in the days to come um, as we as we respond we also want to remind uh, ourselves that we were once held captive and Jesus' words ring true about us as well. And here's what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the Lord's favor comes upon you when you have acknowledged who Jesus is, that he is the one, the only one that can set you free by faith and repentance. And so.